Well, good morning. Uh, welcome again to Grace Bible Church. Uh, we are we're glad you're here, and uh, it is it is my honor and joy, and honestly, it, it is really humbling to be able to share with you this morning the things that I've been learning about a really beautiful section of God's Word. Over the last year, our esteemed pastor West has um, used a variety of colorful metaphors to explain, describe our place within the Christian faith. Some of us have been compared to bottom-sucking fish. <laughs> On Palm Sunday, we were compared to donkeys. And, and then last week, in a strange but relative kindness, we were likened to tiki torches, I think he said. Yes, tiki torches. Well, I am sad to say that the beatings will continue until morale improves. We've got another comparison in our text this week that, that doesn't exactly flatter us, but the comparison this week might be, might be a little easier on the ego. Let's find out, shall we? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and let's look at verses 7 through 12. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Christ may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. One of the purposes of, of Paul's writing this letter is to authenticate his apostleship to show that he is the real deal in the face of some flashy opponents. Uh, and if you've ever submitted a resume for a job, that is kind of similar to what Paul is doing in this first section. He's giving the Corinthians a kind of strange resume of his ministry. And, and I say it's strange because well, normally a resume should focus on the applicant's strengths, usually even overstating them. Paul's resume focuses on his weaknesses, on his struggles. Now, Paul does admit to having a treasure, which refers us to last week's text. The treasure that Paul and his associates have is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. More simply put, the treasure is the gospel, but the container for the gospel is not exactly a luxurious vessel. It's not even a, a strong wooden box with some really old-looking padlocks like you would imagine find, finding uh, buried under an X. Paul says that the treasure they have is in jars of clay, which is probably a prophecy of the 1990s contemporary Christian music group of the same name. <laughs> probably not, actually. The idea of a vessel made of earth, as it would be literally translated, sounds unusual to our modern ears, but it was a well-known material in ancient times. In fact, clay pottery was the cardboard of the ancient world, 
Earthenware vessels were, were cheap to produce. They were widely available, and they were used to make containers for lots of things. Pottery was everywhere. I guess I'm saying that the ancient world was like a huge pottery barn. I've never been in a pottery barn, so I don't know if that's accurate or not. My point, though, is that pottery was everywhere. And in fact, today, if, if an archaeologist discovers a site from the ancient past, the artifact they are most likely to find is a broken piece of pottery, a pot sherd, to use the jargon. So it is a bit surprising when Paul essentially says that the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is carried around in something like an old Amazon box. Just to spell out this metaphor, the treasure is the gospel, as I said, and the jars of clay refers to Paul and his fellow ministers, and of course, that would include us as well. But Paul is not lamenting this reality. In fact, he is celebrating it. Human weakness is a feature, not a bug. It is a feature, not a bug. This apparent discrepancy between the treasure and its container actually exists for a very good reason. It is to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not, Paul says, to us. The Greek is actually even stronger here than the English. The words to show are not in the original. It is saying that the treasure is in clay pots so that the extraordinary power will be from God. It is a condition Human weakness is a prerequisite for divine power. I'm reminded of the story of Gideon from the book of Judges. You may remember this story. Gideon is leading the army, but God tells him the army's too big, so he goes from 30,000 men down all the way to 300 men. And that night, when the moment for the battle arrived, each of those 300 men had two things in their hands. You remember what they were? They had a trumpet and a clay jar with a torch inside it. Now these clay pots were not chosen because they were strong. They were not chosen because they were impressive in any way. The clay pottery was specifically chosen for this task because it was weak. You see, when the men blew their trumpets, they smashed the clay pots, and then the torchlight shone brightly in the night, and the victory came for them without having to fight at all. You and I most brightly show the light of the gospel in our brokenness, in our weakness. Human frailty is the channel of God's power. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. But if you're anything like me, you might take pride in, a, in appearing to always have it all together in a phony posture of self-reliance. But self-reliance is about as effective as whitening toothpaste, toothpaste which is to say not at all effective. <laughs> I have been using whitening toothpaste every day, twice a day for about 15 years or so. And guess what? My teeth are just as yellow as ever. Why do I keep using it? I have no idea. I watch those commercials. I see all of these beautiful people with snow white smiles and perfect teeth. And I just keep using it even though it's never made any difference at all in my life. Self-reliance is the same way. Self-help is no help at all. 
All that self-reliance does at best is keep the torchlight hidden. All that it does is tell a lie about the supposed strength of a very weak clay pot. Human weakness is a prerequisite for divine power. It is a feature of the gospel, not a bug. Starting in verse 8, Paul then goes on to explain how this weakness works itself out. He says that he and his companions were afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. But the power of God shows up in these four areas of weakness. So they were afflicted, but not crushed. God allows the affliction, but prevents them from being crushed. They were perplexed, confused, but not despairing. And and there's a play on words here in the Greek, since these two words, perplexed and despairing, are related to one another in the original language. It's, It's like Paul is saying, we are at a loss, but we are never completely lost. The other significance of this second contrast is uh, that it relates to something that Paul mentioned in chapter 1 of of this letter, something we studied not that long ago. There, if you remember, he mentioned an affliction that he faced in Asia that was such a heavy burden that they despaired of life itself. It's the same word used here, despaired of life itself. In Asia, Paul had a lesson to learn. He says the lesson was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so here in chapter 4, Paul has learned the lesson that God taught him in Asia. He is no longer despairing because he has learned that self-reliance is a trap. The list goes on. They were being persecuted but not forsaken, knocked down but not down for the count. And verse 10 summarizes those four contrasts very well. They were always carrying in the body the death, or more accurately, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus would also be manifested in their bodies. This is the proof of what Paul was saying earlier. The way they know that the power is from God is that they will be in some situation where they are totally helpless. Things are hopeless, and from outward appearances, they are defeated, but they will keep getting back up. They are preserved by God from utter despair and destruction, so the life of Jesus will be seen in them. The life of Jesus is seen in Paul's God-given resilience and extreme difficulties. And in verse 11 and verse 12, Paul makes a radical claim that we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. If you're familiar with Romans 1, it's a really famous passage. You might remember when Paul says that God in his wrath gives over. That's the same phrase. He gives over sinners to their sin. He gives them over to impurity. He gives them over to dishonorable passions. He gives them over to debased minds. But what does God do with his people? In verse 11, we learn that God gives his people over to death. Death. And he is always doing this, it says. The gospel calls us to follow Jesus into the grave, into death, to pick up your cross and join the death march. When we follow him into the grave, though, We also follow him in his 
resurrection. We are buried with Christ, yes, so that we can be raised with Christ. And by the way, this is not only referring to some distant hope in the future. Paul says that, in, that this life of Jesus is being manifested in his mortal flesh, in his life as he wrote these words that we are studying this morning. Eternal life is not something that just kicks in one day when you die. It's, it's actually something that starts now. It's something you can have now because you can die to self now. You can experience the dying of Jesus now and see the life of Jesus manifested now. If you want to see the power of God in your life, stop squirming on the altar. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Stop idolizing comfort. Take content what he has sent. Submit to his providential will in your life. Many Christians have have no problem agreeing with the text of Scripture, but many of us refuse to yield to God's providence. Don't you know that all must work for good for you? God custom makes our trials for us. He sends the afflictions to discipline us, to make us more like him, to teach us to rely not on ourselves And too often we waste the affliction, whining, and discontentment like spoiled children. We are so focused on escaping any discomfort that we don't even consider what God might be doing. We don't even consider that he has a very good reason for sending this affliction to us. We are often too focused on the human person or on the situation that is bringing the trial that we forget the God who sent the trial. Do you accept every person or situation that annoys or frustrates or challenges you as God's means for making you more like Christ? Do you thankfully, thankfully accept a dark providence from God as his means for showing the power of the gospel to those around you? Paul says that the death he experiences corresponds to life for the Corinthians in verse 12. Do you have this willingness to serve God in affliction so others can experience the life of Christ? Would you be content to serve God in obscurity for the rest of your life? Will you be content to be taken for granted by your family or your church or those people that you are ministering to? Will you be pleased and honored to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten? On my best days, the answer for me is yes. But there are many times when my heart is set on the glory of Michael and not on the glory of God. When I, I only want to do the things that will gain me applause. Too often, I want to be the hero of the story. And I suspect that there are many of you here today that are just like me. Friends, we are not the treasure. We are not the treasure. We are the jars of clay. We are the very weak things that God in his kindness uses to show 
his strength. The kingdom of God is not made up of ladder climbers. You and I must get lower, lower down, all the way into the grave of Jesus. We must follow Jesus into the grave so we can follow him in the resurrection. And if you are hearing this and you don't know how to do it, I can't help you. I really can't. I can only point you to Christ. Ask him, or better yet, beg him to humble you. Ask him to grow a divine contentment in your heart. Ask him where in your life you can set aside your comfort, your ambitions for the sake of others. Although we are to be the jars of clay, it is is not the case that we have nothing to do in the midst of a trial. This kind of faith actually produces a response in us that allows others to see the treasure that we are carrying around. Let's look at verses 13 through 15. It says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In verse 13, Paul quotes verbatim from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 116. The psalmist there is remembering a severe trial and how God delivered him from it. The psalmist remembers how God had delivered his soul from death, his eyes from tears, his feet from stumbling, and enabled him to walk in the Lord, walk in the Lord in the land of the living. And then right after that comes the verse that Paul quotes, I believed and so I spoke. I believed and so I spoke. In the middle of an ongoing difficulty, Paul identifies with the psalmist. He has the same spirit of faith, he says. He sees himself in the psalm. And like so many of us, Paul turned to the Psalms and found divinely inspired words to help him understand his situation. And the similarity that he saw in Psalm 116 is a faith that talks. Paul's faith in the trial is a vocal faith, a faith that speaks up, a faith that articulates something. So what is the thing that Paul's faith prompted him to say? What was it that he could not keep to himself? Verse 15 tells us that it is the gospel of grace. Paul's, God's preservation of Paul's faith in suffering led to evangelism. And this evangelism led to the salvation of more and more people, which means more and more people would express thanks, thankfulness to God, which glorifies him more and more. Now, what could possibly motivate Paul to share his faith in the place of suffering? Verse 14 explains that Paul speaks up because he knows, he knows that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul knows that even though he is being given over to death, the resurrection of Christ is also his. He knows it. And the resurrection is not only for him, but also for the Corinthians, also for us. God will raise Paul and the Corinthians and us and bring all of us into the presence of Christ. 
This is the hope that overflows from Paul in his trials. This is the thing that he, he can't stop from saying. This is why Paul in many places in the epistles prays for boldness to speak. His faith requires him to speak. You see, God preserves the faith of his elect in such a way that they speak out in suffering. And this speaking out is not in complaint, but in faith. Consider the sayings of Job after God allowed his children, his wealth, his property, and his health to be taken away. And if that's not bad enough, he has this wife telling him to curse God and die. She sounds like a real sweetheart. What does Job say? His response to her is, should we only accept good things from the hand of the Lord? (laughs) Later in the book, this profound faith is stated in even starker terms. He says of God, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Even if God kills me, I will trust him. This kind of statement is is profound any time, but it resonates in the context of suffering. Things like this are easy enough to say in the good times, but in the middle of a trial, they reveal a living faith that cannot be shaken. When you are in the middle of a trial, it's like your microphone has been turned up louder than normal. You have the ears of everyone around you, whether you realize it or not. Those cracks in your clay jar show what is inside to those around you. In 2017, my father-in-law was was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and it took him quickly. He went from diagnosis to death in two months. It was brutal. It was sudden. I have no doubt that he went to his reward that he was promoted, and I watched God ripen him for glory on the deathbed. But the thing I remember most about the days before he died is the faith of my wife, the faith of a woman watching her father waste away before her eyes. Now, I knew long before this that I had married a great woman, a truly godly woman, But it wasn't until we were there standing around her father's deathbed that I really knew the kind of faith that she had. She had a vocal faith. She believed, and so she spoke. Well, she sang, actually. She sat down at a piano and and led her family in singing, Great is thy faithfulness. I, I don't know that I had ever seen anything like that. (laughs) Uh, There I was, this this supposedly professional worship leader with nothing to offer. There was my wife leading her family and singing this great hymn of the faith. And that changed me. And and it changed the way I saw the whole situation. Uh, I went from pitying this dying man before me to seeing the faithfulness and kindness of God to give him a family that could sing these words around his deathbed. I could finally make sense of another verse in Psalm 116, which says, Precious in the sight of the Lord 
is the death of his saints. Friends, I want to challenge you to speak up about Christ in your most difficult moments. To allow your faith to be seen in your trials. To boast in your weakness so the power of Christ can rest on you. When your faith is vocal like this, it shows that you are looking at things in a profoundly different way than the world does. And that will lead to grace extending to more and more people, to the glory of God. Paul had a unique perspective which actually energized him to evangelize others even from a place of brokenness, from weakness. I want to look at that perspective in verses 16 through 18. It says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The beginning of verse 16 points us back to the first verse in this fourth chapter. Throughout this whole chapter, Paul has been explaining how and why he does not lose heart. And then he shares his unique perspective with us, and it is given in the form of yet another contrast. The outer self is wasting away, but the inner self is being renewed day by day. There's a progressive weakening of Paul's physical powers that corresponds to the progressive strengthening of his soul. It should be pointed out that Paul was not lamenting old age here. This passage is certainly applicable to the process of getting older, a process which is mostly signified by baldness, according to one preacher. That is, that is definitely a fair application of this text, but Paul is referring to something more than old age. He's referring to the physical cost that gospel ministry is having on his body. Paul is living a life that is killing his body, but renewing his soul. He was probably not an old man when he wrote these words, but I bet he felt like it. He had received beatings. He had gone homeless and hungry. He carried the wounds and scars of his faithfulness to Christ on his body. You see, Paul had a totally different outlook on health than most of us. His first priority was the glory of God, no matter what toll it took on his body. He considered himself to be a drink offering poured out for God. I think there are many, many people in our culture, and probably a number of us in this very room who have our priorities in a completely different order than Paul. We are often more preoccupied with our outer man than we are with our inner man. There are many, many people who have slipped into eternity with a very healthy body and a very dead soul. Even here in the church, there are many of us who have no problem making it to the gym every day, but can't seem to find the time to study God's Word. Now, obviously, that is not my particular struggle. 
But even those of us who have more of a, a keg than a six-pack, <laughs> even us, even I can be guilty of idolizing safety. Many of us live with a sinful fear of physical pain, of sickness and death. The truth is that most of us invest a great deal of time, money, and thought into preserving, protecting, and comforting our outer man. We go to the doctor if we're sick. We exercise. We eat food we don't enjoy like salads. All to help our outer self. And by the way, I'm not saying those things are bad except for the salads. Those are terrible. <laughs> but I wonder how many of us myself very much included, even come close to spending that kind of time on strengthening our inner man. And then we are surprised when our prayer life is lacking or when we stumble over the most pathetic temptation. But I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that way. I want to be like Paul. When I die, I want to be used up completely for God's glory. I don't want to enter eternity with any gas left in my tank. I want to be poured out for the sake of Christ. I want my outer man to be used up and my inner man to be stronger than ever. This is where having the divine perspective is important. Let's look again at verse 17. It says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is quite a bit of glory hidden in these words, so let's unpack it. First, there are some more contrasts at work here. The affliction is called light, and the glory is called a weight. There's a play on words. The Greek term for glory is often used in the Greek Old Testament to translate Hebrew words like weighty or heavy. Paul would have certainly known that the word for glory has a connection to heaviness, so this glory is an eternal weight of weights. It is heavy glory. Also, the affliction is momentary, temporary, while the glory is eternal. The short-term pain produces long-term glory. Now, I'm not one to normally get into the Greek in my sermons, but, but this is worth mentioning. The term rendered preparing here in the ESV is almost always rendered as doing or producing in other places, even by the ESV translators. The NASB and the NET translators render this word in this verse as producing. The NIV renders it as achieving. And even the King James renders it as worketh. Why in the world am I rambling on about this? Because it could be easy to miss something in our ESV translation. You see, there's a profound difference between something that is being prepared for you to enjoy at some point in the future and something that is being produced for you to enjoy now. The affliction is not just a savings account that will one day be cashed in for glory. The affliction is producing glory now for you. The difficulty you are facing under the sovereignty of God is working for good for you today. For the Christian Suffering is like a productive oil well that is pumping out black gold every day to the glory of God. And that is an illustration worthy of the great city of Houston. For the believer, trials are not a trust fund. They are a checking account that earns interest. 
The afflictions you face produce godliness in you now. Your sanctification will culminate in your glorification, but in the same way as you experience the afflictions now, you will also grow in holiness now. It is a gradual sanctification that is working in you to will and to do God's good pleasure today. The Puritan Thomas Watson said it this way, Afflictions add to the saint's glory. The more the diamond is cut, the more it sparkles. The heavier the saint's crown cross is, the heavier will be their crown. Verse 18 provides an important qualifier for all of this, though. Paul points out that afflictions produce glory for us as we, this is a condition, as we look to the unseen things. As our affections are increasingly heavenly, our afflictions are increasingly lightened. As our affections are increasingly heavenly, our afflictions are increasingly lightened. And this is because the unseen things are eternal. The things you can see in their current state are temporary. Losing heart comes from focusing on the wrong things. Paul is, is not at all saying to close your eyes to the difficulty of the trial, but he is saying to open them to actual reality. The truth is that whatever you are enduring is transient. It is temporary when considering eternity. It may feel like it will last forever, but it is a drop in the bucket of eternity. It is momentary. Momentary. The real but unseen reality is that God is working all things for good for you. And this is so certain that you are repeatedly commanded in Scripture to thank God in all circumstances. You will not know all the details, but you know enough to thank Him. You know He is working it for your good. And if you are in the middle of a trial right now, this morning and you haven't thanked God for it, I know that's hard. I know it won't feel right, but you should do it. It will be good for your soul. Worship Him. Even when you don't want to, even when it's hard, those are the very times when you show the treasure that you are bearing within your clay. The seen reality might be that you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You have lost a loved one, a child, a spouse, a parent. The unseen reality is that God is with you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. He is closer to you than you are to you. <laughs> Do not lose heart. The seen reality might be that you or someone you're close to has a terminal illness, the unseen reality is that God is using that to produce heavy glory. Do not lose heart. Christian, your hope will not come from navel-gazing. Your hope will not come from a closer scrutiny of the situation. Your hope will not come from numbing the pain with booze, drugs, shopping, travel, binge-watching. Your hope can only come from Christ who is sovereign over the seen and the unseen. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, all 
things were created through him and for him, so we do not lose heart. Our hope comes from remembering that the God of the universe works all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. And God the Son is reconciling to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross, so we do not lose heart. Are you in need of peace? Are you in need of hope? Look to the Son. Look to Jesus who leads us in triumphal procession into the grave and then out of it again. Behold your God and remember that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise you also and bring you into his presence. Look to the unseen reality and you will see an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Walk by faith and not by sight and you will not lose heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you meet us where we are and not where we should be. We thank you, Lord, for your ability to use people like us. That, Lord, in the midst of our trials, that you've given us a faith, you preserved a faith that speaks up. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for trying to be the hero of the story, for thinking we are the treasure when we are very weak jars of clay. Lord, I want to pray especially for my friends here in this room who are suffering right now, who are going through a trial, who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them in a particular way this morning, in a profound way this morning. I pray that they would be reminded of your goodness and the gospel so they would not lose heart, that they would look to you, look to the unseen in the midst of a difficult situation. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that you would continue to use the situations that you put us in, the difficulty that you put us in, for your glory and for our good. We know that you work all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So Lord, we trust you in the midst of difficulty. And Lord, we pray all of that in the strong name of Jesus. And amen.